good to see you guys. Uh, I would apologize for the pollen, but I didn't invent trees, so you guys could take that up with Jesus later. It's <clears throat> a terrible joke. Gosh, you guys need to palm down a little bit. All right, there it is. All right. When dad jokes become preacher jokes. Let's pray again. We're getting this off to a rough start. Okay. Jesus, you're really, really, really good. God, thank you that we get to celebrate you as the enthroned king today. Lord, on this side of your passion, we know what this week entails. God, we thank you for what you did for us. Jesus, thank you that you said you would um, go away, that you would send the comforter, the counselor, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds that we might taste and see and understand and hear that you truly are the king and that you are good and that you have our best interests at heart. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as you know, is Palm Sunday. Can I see your palms real quick? Let's wave those suckers. Yep. There we go. Palm Sunday. So we just participated as a church in the reenactment of a really special day in history, a day that occurred 2,000 years ago, the day of Jesus' royal procession into Jerusalem, sort of. Rome wasn't built in a day. Days, years, generations went into the empire that we now know as that great civilization, Rome. Likewise, the day that we just reenacted was days and years and centuries in the making. What we just reenacted did not happen day of. The men, the women, the children that were gathered in Jerusalem that day didn't just decide they would usher in the king of kings. They didn't just say, hey, I know, I'll take off my coat and my cardigan and I've got these palm branches and I'm just going to lay them down. And then some dude is like, hey, I think I just came up with a jingle like Joel did, which is very good. Thank you for writing that. And then everybody's like, you know what? That's a great idea. Here comes Jesus. He's walking by. Let's do this thing. It was centuries in the making. This moment in history that happened 2,000 years ago was centuries in the making. I think if we look at it at face value as day of, it's a pretty significant moment. But if we can look behind the scenes... We can see all that went into it. We'll see that it was truly magnificent. So instead of walking through our Palm Sunday narrative from Luke 19, verse by verse, I want to go backwards. I want to go backwards those generations and those centuries to see from whence this moment came, to look at our Palm Sunday narrative through ancient eyes. So if you would, you've got some blue Bibles in your Rose, maybe share some of those, or go to your phone. 
Turn with me to Psalm 118, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures for Israel forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. You're seeing a theme here. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 is the very last of the Egyptian Hallel songs, which is the designation for Psalms 113 through 118. These were sung, uh, read, sung in synagogues on festive occasions to remember God's deliverance from Egypt. Pilgrims would recite these songs on their way to the temple as they brought sacrifices. There were celebration songs delivered of how God delivered their ancestors. When the people sang them, they were putting to tune and melody and verse their national heritage. For us, this might be the difference between opening a U.S. history book and being on the Guad in a float in nothing but red, white, and blue whilst fireworks dazzle us whilst listening to Lee, Lee Greenwood. Right? It's, it's like an embodiment of heritage nationally. But the thing about these Hallels is that the subject or the thesis is the celebration of God's Hesed love seen in the way that he delivered the nation from their oppressing army, their enemy that had enslaved them, Egypt. But within these, we also see the joy around God's goodness and giving them a place of permanence in the land. This is partly why the final Hallel begins with, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. As it turns out, Chris Tomlin didn't write this song. (laughs) If you know, you know. The psalmist says, God has been so good to us, let's sing. Let's sing together. Then in verses 5 through 18, the psalmist begins speaking for the nation by reporting just how the Lord delivered them, how he answered their prayer, how he rescued them from the oppressors. I'd ask for you to go later today and read those verses because if we go through those verse by verse, we're not getting out of here till 2 p.m., which, right. So just take my word for it. The psalmist is now saying, this is how God actually did it. But for our purposes this morning, we're gonna look in earnest at this end section starting in verse 19. Here the songwriter leads in communal praise by expressing desire to enter the sanctuary. You'll see it here on the screen. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Here we have to imagine a procession of people coming up to the temple. And they're asking the literal priests that are inside the gate to the temple to open up the gates. Let them come through. These gates were called the gates of righteousness primarily because of the one who dwelled therein, the righteous God. There was also a piece of the condition needed for those that sought to desire 
are sought uh, to, to worship this righteous God, they had to be right with God themselves. So verse 19 is the congregation saying, I want to come in, I want to go to church, I want to worship Yahweh. And verse 20 is the priests reminding them of their need to be right with the righteous God. What follows is spilling out of their hearts. Look at this. I thank you that you have answered me, verse 21, and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Again, Tomlin didn't write that one. Like many passages of the Old Testament, we find ourselves in a situation where there are multiple realities, reference points, and even future fulfillments. In specific instances of prophecy, these are called dual fulfillments. But Psalms is wisdom literature. It's not prophetic. But we find messianic prophecy all throughout Psalms, so we've got this kind of weird, clunky thing going on. Psalm 118 was written as a celebration song to God for his deliverance from Egypt. We know this, but we're also going to see that there's messianic prophecy here. Psalm 118 was true for their ancestors, the ones that actually lived through the Exodus. Many years later, many centuries later, it stands true for those who are singing it, those worshipers who desire to come into the temple that's now established, right? They want to worship God. As it turns out, it stands that some 3,000 years later, it rings true for us. You might call that a triple application. And I want to use this notion of a double or a triple fulfillment or application as we look at verses 22 and 26. So two verses to go before we close. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone So this one likely is a triple fulfillment. If we remember David's rather humble beginnings, do you remember how he was chosen? Didn't quite have the pedigree. Do you remember Samuel's question to Jesse? So do you have any other boys? Because I'm pretty sure Yahweh said, go to Jesse's house. The next king of Israel is there. It's one of his sons. And And you've paraded all of them through, and each one, the Lord says, nope, he's not the one. So here we are. We're at the end of the line. Is there another kid? Jesse sheepishly replies, well, I mean, there's this little runt dude who's out in the field. Sure, let's go get David. So this would fit, right, if David wrote this psalm. We can't go down the authorship track here. Again, we want to be out of here by 2 p.m. So this thing could be about David in the way that he was chosen. We know it's definitely about the nation of Israel. Listen to what Eliot says. Israel is, of course, this stone, rejected as of no account in the political plans of those who were trying to shape the destinies of the eastern nations at their own pleasure. But in the purpose of God designed to be a chief place in the building up of history. 
So this notion that Israel is the stone that was rejected. Israel never had the pomp or the circumstance or the huge tracts of land like many of the surrounding nations, right? If you go to the, I think it's the National History Museum in London, or you go to the Louvre in Paris, what do you find? You find a bunch of stuff from the Assyrians. You find a bunch of stuff from the Babylonians. It's all really beautiful, and it's humongous. There's not a whole lot from Israel. All these others were empires. Israel as a nation was never very powerful. But like most things, God turns things on their heads. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone from the foundation, firmly placed The one who believes in it will not be disturbed. We find this, and we find Psalm 118 applied 1,000 years later. Jesus says to them, Matthew 21, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He who has ears to hear, listen. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Then the apostle Peter adds another really amazing layer in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to read it to us. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Remember the context, right? Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, here's Isaiah 28. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one, listen, who trusts in him See what Peter did? He interpreted it. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7, now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, here's Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Then he throws in Isaiah chapter 8. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse 9, but you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a ton there. When we read Acts chapter four, this is Peter again. He gets really granular on what this means. He's recounting to the religious leaders 
how it is that he healed the lame beggar. Listen to this, verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Look at this. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. No, it's not what it says, right? Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation, verse 12, is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I mean, this is pretty mental, right? King David is like the nation of Israel is like Jesus of Nazareth. All passed over, all humble beginnings, all seemingly insignificant at first, all without pedigree, all opposite of what prevailing culture says is powerful and good and to be sought after. Yet in God's economy, they are the central players. So when we get to Luke chapter 19, when we get to what we just reenacted, let's think of it in terms of those ancient views, those ancient perspectives. What was the writer of that psalm those who sung it 3,000 years ago, what were they looking for? What was their purpose in singing it? They were looking to connect with the righteous God. They wanted to walk through the gates of righteousness to worship him in the temple. But we have to keep in mind the mechanics of said worship. There's purification rituals There's dietary laws. There's sacrificing produce and beverages and animals. There's tithes. There's other offerings. There's the observance of the Sabbath and festivals and fast days. Then a thousand years later, we find Jesus and the disciples approaching Jerusalem, the capital city where now this temple exists, around which all of this Ceremony revolves. We pick the story up in Luke 19. And they brought it to Jesus, the donkey. Throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus upon it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks and presumably branches along the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now pay attention to the details on this next slide. Right, there's a lot of messianic details in what we've just read. There's the cult, there's all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that go into this triumphal entry and what it entails. But for us this morning, 
I want us to focus on how the disciples bring Psalm 118 into focus for us. Thousands of years prior, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then the disciples switch it. They interpret it on the fly. They took the psalm from the temple priest who would say this to the uncoming worshipers and directly apply it to Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. As we know, on this side of the passion, the disciples and those that were gathering that joined in the um, triumphal entry, the, the parade that occurred, they couldn't anticipate what a difference the week would make. How their lives would change, how the very same ones that were shouting Hosanna would change their tune pretty drastically in a few nights' time. But for now, on this day, they're full of joy, just like all their ancestors that sang these hallels over the centuries. The question, I think, is what were the disciples and those who saw, sang Psalm 118 2,000 years ago What were they attempting to do? What was their purpose? What were they after? Just like their ancestors, they were looking for deliverance. They were both celebrating it and looking for new deliverance because of Rome. Some in the crowd, of course, had an underdeveloped theology of what Messiah would accomplish. I think we'd do well to not shame them. So we probably are them. 3,000 years ago, the people singing Psalm 118 on their way into the temple could only get so close to God. They had to go through purification rituals, all kinds of fasts, and bring sacrifices to approach the righteous God. 2,000 years ago, the people who were singing Psalm 118 on their way into Jerusalem along with Jesus didn't realize how close they actually were to God. Same song. And that very week, these same people would engage in some purification rituals and there would be a sacrifice, a final sacrifice that would change everything. A sacrifice that would reverse the curse, that would break the shackles of sin, that would set the prisoners free finally, and almost no one saw it for what it was. Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, the one whose political potential was never realized, the one who died a criminal's death, the one who turned everything around. I want to close with Psalm 118, verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in their eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you
thank you that you are enthroned. Lord, thank you that even though you were cast aside, you were rejected, you were murdered, you are the cornerstone. God, somehow, some way, some miraculous plan of yours, you've even invited us in. Lord, as Peter says, we're being built into a new house. Spiritual house where you are the foundation and you are sure and steady. Lord, I pray for us here. Lord, as we celebrate, as we feast today, and we are right to do so, this Palm Sunday, Lord, would you um, give us ears, give us eyes to see and hear you and your passion in a new and fresh way this week. God, thank you that we now um, get to celebrate your redemption. The redemption that is ours because of what you did. So Lord, as we come to your table, may we remember Holy Week. May we remember your passion for us. Lord, that sacrifice had to occur. Thanks be to God that you were that sacrifice. This great Pascal mystery of you dying in our place. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.